It's The World This Week, The World This Week in partnership with The Daily Beast. Joining us from London, Nico Hines, world editor of uh, said publication. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to England, France, the World Cup. Tomorrow. You are? Okay. Good luck to uh, our French viewers. Oh, well, uh, well I, I'll, I'll say the same to, to all, to all our, our, our viewers from across the channel. Uh, Vivian Walt, Paris correspondent for Time magazine. Uh, Viv, got to say, a little disappointed that Kylian Mbappe wasn't named Time's Person of the Year. Oh, I know. What a shocker. <laughs> yeah. All right. Also joining us, Borzu Dargai, international correspondent for The Independent. How are things? Great. Great. Yeah, except for this weather. Except Paris. for the weather. Uh, we won't mention football. Swiss journalist uh, Josef Devec, author of Macron, the Revolutionary President. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. All right. The, uh, you can listen, by the way, like and subscribe to The World This Week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other fine streaming services. During the Cold War, the exchanges would happen at Berlin's Bridge of Spies. In a flashback moment staged this time in Abu Dhabi, U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner swapped for Russian arms uh, a trafficker Victor Boot. The former stopped on the eve of the war in Ukraine in February with cannabis resin in her suitcase at Moscow Airport. The latter serving a 25-year sentence in the U.S. for selling arms to rebels and rogue states the world uh, over. Uh, what was your reaction when you, when you looked at those images for the first time, Borzu? I mean, I thought it was a, it was a pretty good deal. I mean, it's uh, Victor Boot, the merchant of death, the uh, subject of many stories in the arms trafficking world. Uh, he had done 14 years. It's not like he was being let off uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a no uh, punishment for his uh, uh, cr many transgressions and, and uh, sellings of weapons and so on. And, um, you know, this, this uh, poor professional athlete uh, being held as a hostage in Russia, uh, basically being, you know, a civilian caught up in geopolitics, it was uh, good optics for the Biden administration to get her released, and not that expensive uh, for it to uh, let Victor Boot go politically. Uh, he was, a, he is not a, a major figure anymore. He is a, a spent force uh, in the world of arms trafficking. Uh, a spent force. I want to get back to that second point in a moment. But when you say uh, it was a good deal, uh, let's listen to what Joe Biden said. During the uh, announcement, he made uh, no mention of uh, Boot himself, but he did mention Paul Whelan. He's the head of uh, security for an auto parts manufacturer. He's also a U.S. citizen, a former Marine, who's serving 16 years in Russia for spying. He was arrested back in 2018. She wrote to me back in July. She didn't ask for special treatment, even though we've been working on a release from the day one. She requested a simple quote, please don't forget about me and the other American detainees. Please do all you can to bring us home. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. Uh, Vivian Walt, the, uh, there's been criticism that, uh, that not everyone agrees with Borzu, that don't, um, particularly Republicans, saying that uh, this was not a fair trade and uh, that uh, it, uh, Paul Whelan should have been in the mix. Well, I think that uh, Biden obviously thought so as well, but uh, the, you know, Russia clearly dug its heels in and simply wouldn't budge and put, I think, put the U.S. in a kind of position where they had to get her out. There was all the expectations that 
a deal had to be made before Christmas. Um, and my own feeling is, I mean, Borja put it quite well, that she, she was a hostage. She was not a prisoner. She was certainly not a criminal. She was a hostage. And it seemed very orchestrated from the moment that she was arrested. They needed to arrest somebody that they could trade. And it took nearly 10 months. But I think that from the moment she was arrested, this is what the Kremlin had in mind. And I think it pulled it off really effectively. Josef de Weck? Well, what worries me a bit about this deal is exactly that um, the American part of the exchange was uh, was a hostage. So it was a person that was just, you know, arrested uh, on bogus charges. And um, we have to think what this sort of deal means for the future. Does it mean that Russia slowly starts uh, getting into the business of just randomly, you know, arresting Americans who happen to travel in Russia in order to extract concessions from uh, the U.S.? You know, there is this idea, basically, that uh, you shouldn't negotiate with terrorists. Um, a lot of countries do this. They say we don't do this because once we start making these deals, um, you know, it will never stop. And to some extent, you can ask the same question about this deal as well. You know, Russia is a state. It's not a terrorist organization. It's not, you know, some terrorist group uh, in Mali or somewhere else. Um, but there is clearly a deal that is being done here. And there is a, there is a business uh, that, that potentially has a future. And that is sort of the, the downside to this deal to some extent, um, which, which, which is worrying. Nico Heinz? Yeah, I think this question about not negotiating with terrorists is interesting. Uh, I don't think there are very many countries that really don't negotiate at all with terrorists. Uh, when it comes down to it, there's all sorts of people suddenly get released and then it comes out years later that actually the, the US president did make a call or that the British government was involved in behind the scenes negotiations. So I think the claim is much easier to make than the reality. You, couldn't, you could hardly have left Brittany Griner in prison for years of her life just to kind of prove a point of principle. Uh, I think it's very interesting to see Vladimir Putin's thinking in all of this, you know, in terms of trying to get uh, Whelan released as well, um, the price that the Russians asked uh, reportedly was for this guy who's been jailed in Berlin for murdering a Chechen fighter. Uh, they wanted him released, and he's only been in jail for a relatively short time for an extremely serious offence. It does paint a very strange picture that Putin is willing to stand up for these obvious bad guys, the merchant of death and an assassin. He is willing to go out of his way to strike a deal on the global stage. I think it tells us a lot about how little Putin is now paying attention to how people around the world see him, and that is a slightly frightening thought. Yeah, and if, if, if viewers uh, haven't read the book, The Merchant of Death, or, or seen the Hollywood movie where Victor Boot is played by Nicolas Cage, uh, it's certainly a, a larger-than-life character that uh, today walks uh, free. Victor Boot, uh, back in 2010, our own uh, Cyril Payen spoke with him after his arrest. It was in Bangkok, Thailand, in a U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency sting operation the Tashkent-born weapons trader, who uh, answered our reporter in French. Listen, Americans, with all their means and money, never managed to show any evidence in 12 months. Until now, 
They've done nothing. Pagnon uh, telling us uh, there uh, that uh, uh, he was convinced at the time that uh, he would never be extradited and he wouldn't serve time. I know this kind of swagger and confidence, which actually you caught a glimpse of when uh, when he was getting on the plane today back to Moscow, um, that he sort of came out looking pretty darn good. So, so do you agree when Borzu calls him a spent force, that he's, uh, I, he's yesterday's news? Well, we have yet to really understand the kind of role he played within the intelligence um, services of Russia, which uh, he certainly had deep connections to and involvement with. But we don't quite know whether he is simply as, you know, in retirement at this point, um, or whether he has something to offer. Um, I mean, it's been 14 years. His face is known. His name is known. I mean, that's what I mean, that he's, he's, he's not a good operative anymore. His cover is blown, uh, so to speak. If he was a, an intelligence uh, operative, if he had a role in the intelligence services, it's not going to do uh, uh, Russia or anyone else much good anymore. It's a public relations win. He's been interviewed uh, uh, already. Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a little political win for Putin in a very dark time where he's doing poorly in Ukraine. All right. The, uh, when he, uh, we were talking about uh, Victor Boot, of course, uh, it's happening in the context of a war, uh, a cold war of a different sort. Uh, dinner by candlelight is, is always romantic. Uh, but uh, as we can show you in this Kiev restaurant, it's, not, it's by necessity repeated strikes by the Russians hitting critical infrastructure at the outset of winter. There have been rolling power outages uh, in the newly retaken southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. The prospect of a freezing winter is a daunting one. Sympathy from the Kremlin, though, seems in short supply. There is a lot of noise now about our strikes on the energy infrastructure of the neighboring country. Yes, we are doing it. But who started it? Who struck the Crimean bridge? Now, Nico Hines, uh, the Daily Beast wrote about uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's remarks uh, earlier this week. Uh, at the same time, he's sort of hinting this Friday that uh, there will have to be discussions at some point. Yeah, although I can't believe he's actually said who started it. I mean, we all know who started it. And it was Vladimir Putin against the advice of even his own advisers, against the advice of any sentient human being uh, in Europe, and he went ahead and did it. I think uh, one of the interesting aspects to this war of, over the cold is what's also happening back in Russia. We ran a great piece by our Moscow correspondent, uh, Anna Nemtsova, last week about how Russians are f starting to freeze to death as the winter kicks in this year. Um, it's something that happens every year in Russia, but particularly when poverty is at its height. And it's been made much worse this year by the fact that in many rural areas, villages, the men who go out to work have been taken away and sent to Ukraine to fight, while the rich sons of the Kremlin and the elites in Moscow have largely been left alone. The strong, fit, economically viable men in rural Russia have been sent to Ukraine, leaving behind families who are unable to fend for themselves. And over the next few months, there's going to be thousands of Russians dying in the cold, as well as thousands of Ukrainians dying in the cold. Mm -hmm.
thousands of Russians, thousands of Ukrainians. Uh, Viv Time magazine putting Ukraine's president on its cover this week. Uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, person of the year. Uh, and the nod comes uh, with the challenges uh, aforementioned. Absolutely. And I mean, not just because I work for Time, but honestly, if anybody has not read it, you really should read it. It's uh, written by the correspondent who knows Zelensky well and has been pretty much embedded inside the presidential compound for much of the war. So, um, you know, one interesting thing about these strikes on the um, electricity, water, the infrastructure, is that the Russians seem to be striking very, very precisely. Um, these have been really kind of impressive militarily, and they are working off maps from the Soviet Union, because all of Ukraine is still, of course, running on Soviet infrastructure from, you know, 30 years ago. Um, so I think it's really worrying, but it's also in some ways a sign of Putin's desperation. He's losing on the front line. And this is now the most um, devastating weapon that he has. Yeah, and uh, the Ukrainians claiming the, to have uh, intercepted more and more. The other day there were 70 missiles fired and 60 of them uh, uh, intercepted, says uh, Kiev. And uh, Vladimir Putin, who uh, will or will not have to deal with dwindling revenue. It was the week uh, where the European Union slapped a ban on Russian imports of seaborne uh, crude. Soon after... Well, it was time for traffic problems in the Black Sea. Turkey enforcing new rules to check the paperwork on tankers. They insist they don't want the, to fall foul of G7 nations that sanction those that cannot prove that the Russians are, aren't uh, selling their oil at or below the $60 a barrel threshold that's been imposed. Uh, the problem, almost all the tankers you see in these images are carrying Kazakh crude, not Russian. As of Friday morning, the backlog was up to 28 tankers. Insurers accuse Ankara of overzealousness, while the West uh, the, 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 uh, accusing them of overzealousness, uh, stating uh, this is the international group uh, 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 that uh, represents insurers, representing uh, 13 of them, um, saying on Monday that the Turkish request went well beyond the general information uh, normally uh, required. Josef Devek uh, is Turkey keen not to fall foul of the U.S. Treasury, or is it cozying up to Vladimir Putin? Well, I think Burzu is probably the better person to, uh, to answer this question, since, um, since he knows Turkey and Istanbul much better. Um, I think the, the key point here is just that energy and the winter was supposed to be the biggest ally of Russia in this war. And, um, and I think what we're seeing now, we're seeing it in Ukraine, but we're also seeing in the rest of Europe, uh, that it doesn't really work, um, that Europeans aren't freezing too cold, that uh, if you look at sort of levels of public support in Europe uh, for the war or for, uh, for supporting Ukraine, it's quite stable. And we're not seeing any collapse in sort of morale in Ukraine either. And, um, and um, in a sense, this can't really change in a, in, a, in a long future as well, because even if you're in a situation where you imagine having an armistice, uh, being negotiated, there is not a huge upside, for example, for energy imports to Europe that is going yeah, to there, come. Yeah, there, there was this uh, statistic put out by the French energy provider 
this week that uh, the French had heeded the call and reduced their energy consumption by 10 percent over November of last year during uh, the past month. Yeah, I mean, the French have reduced uh, electricity consumption by 10%. The Germans have also reduced by 10%. So that's more or less in, in the European line. And, and the thing is really that even if the war would stop, it doesn't mean that Russian gas would continue to flow or restart flowing to Europe the next day. Uh, not at all. So in a sense, we're already in there and we have to live with this world without Russian energy. Um, Putin has fired his bullet. Um, and now it's, it's, it's done. How about Turkey? Can Turkey live without Russian energy? I, I mean, no, it can't. And it needs it. It needs uh, Russian energy. And it, it, it is uh, the dependence on cheap Russian energy that uh, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, very much hopes will uh, keep Turks happy enough to uh, give him another election win uh, come June. When you're talking about Turkey these days uh, and Turkish decisions and Turkish dis decision making, all that matters is one thing and one thing only June 23rd, the date of those uh, general elections. Okay, so put that in perspective for us. W what is it about double-checking the paperwork on these tankers? Turkey's trying to make itself relevant. Turkey is frustrated right now uh, because of its inability to get the green light from the United States, Russia, uh, any other uh, player in uh, Syria to uh, launch uh, its uh, Syria invasion. Uh, it's wanted for weeks and weeks and weeks to uh, uh, take over uh, Kurdish parts of Syria and as a kind of election strategy to some extent to uh, uh, show the Turkish people that Erdogan has a solution for uh, the migrant crisis and so on. And it's not been able, Turkey has not been able to do that. And it's, you know, basically becoming difficult. And it's, it's, it's creating difficulties for everyone. I don't, I'm not sure how this even helps Russia at this point, uh, given what uh, my colleague over there was saying about the uh, uh, futility of Russian efforts at this point to make its energy relevant and its energy weapon relevant. Yeah, the, the, this bottleneck is happening uh, in the Black Sea, Nico Hines. It would be a bigger deal, except uh, right now, the uh, price of oil the last few days has gone down. This be over worries that uh, China's economy uh, uh, may be subject to a wave of Omicron. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position if your entire plan is based on a certain price of, of well, of any commodity, but of oil, um, of gas, because it's so hard to predict the way these things are going to move and change. China's economy is going to be impacted massively over the next year because they basically haven't had COVID over there yet. You know, it's been, they've kept it locked down so tightly that it hasn't spread very much. They're about to start opening up and there's going to be a huge wave on a basically unvaccinated population over the age of 65. Um, and there's going to be massive ramifications for the global economy. Um, and I think what we're seeing is Putin's back, fallback plan of, well, I can make people do whatever I want because I've got this gas, I've got this oil, is true to some extent. And that's why he's got lots of people who were uh, afraid of upsetting him. That's why, partly why the Turks, uh, you know, uh, don't want to fall foul of him. And there's lots of other countries, you know, even including Germany and Italy, who've not been as hard on him as they might have been if they weren't partially reliant on the products that come out of Russia. But what he's done, if you look at it slightly longer term, is hasten Europe's 
decision to make sure it no longer does rely on these Russian gas and oil production. And that's going to mean that Russia's place on Earth, Russia's place in Europe is going to massively dwindle over the next five to ten years as countries realise that this is not a reliable partner and that they'll find alternative plans. Yeah, and uh, one final word. We spoke of China. While the West scrambles to cut Russia's revenues, the Saudis making new friends with Xi Jinping enjoying this Friday a double header of summits, first with Gulf states and then with Arab League nations. China's president with warm words for his host. China is willing to move forward together with Saudi Arabia in realizing national revitalization and in promoting greater development of the China-Saudi Arabia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. Is that conversation uh, something to worry Europe or, or we don't care right now at this point? In term, when you hear Yosef talking about energy saving, when you talk about uh, the, the faster move to renewables. I think that you have to worry. I mean, Saudi Arabia is still the power within OPEC. OPEC plus, um, as it's known, if you bring in Russia. But certainly, it is still a massively important oil power. And one could argue becoming more important because um, of Russia's marginalization in the oil world. So the fact that they are making this kind of deal, which includes an enormous amount of, if you read the document, includes all sorts of different economic and political and um, ties, development ties, um, and energy, of course, um, with the caveat that they will not interfere in each other's internal affairs. So no criticism of the protests in, um, in China over the COVID policy, no, no, no questioning Saudi Arabia over its human rights record. Um, I think it's very significant, and it certainly is such a contrast from the kind of cordial reception that Biden got when he went earlier this year to Riyadh um, and effectively begged the crown prince not to cut oil production. Um, and within days, of course, the crown prince did exactly that. Um, and I think it was very much a statement this week that... Uh, you know, we're not going to be, you know, the U.S.'s uh, best friend and anymore. And yet Riyadh and uh, its ally, the UAE, which played mediator in that prisoner swap we talked about at the outset. Right, exactly. And so, you know, there is so much happening within the Gulf region. Of course, in the context also of this being the middle of the World Cup in Qatar um, and all these, you know, hourly flights going in and out of uh, Dubai and flights going in and out of Riyadh. Um, so, yes, I mean, of course, suddenly the, the Gulf is looking like the, it can be kind of a geopolitical power lever, if you like, um, between the U.S. and China. Uh, it, we have to stop thinking of these countries as partners or allies or enemies and, and so on and just grow up a little bit and just look at their interests. 
I mean, Saudi Arabia does what it does because it's in its interest. And, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously uh, there's some values involved there. It's clearly rankled uh, by the way the uh, kind of distance that the U.S. officials uh, treat Saudi Arabia with and to some extent European officials. You know, yes, we'll buy your oil and sell you weapons, but we don't want to touch you. We don't want to get near you. We don't want to be photographed with you. That's, you know, pretty much the attitude of the West towards these countries. Um, so there is that element. But, you know, Saudi Arabia and UAE and Turkey and these countries, they do what's best for them based on their own uh, internal calculations. They're not our friends. They're not our enemies. They're not, uh, they're, they're basically playing their own game. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. If you look at, you know, who's the biggest client of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's oil exports, it's China. And, you know, the customer is king and uh, China is the biggest customer and is going to be the even more important customer in the future. The U.S. Uh, since long now uh, is not a net oil importer anymore. Uh, Europe, if you think in a sort of 10, 20 year perspective, is going to import much less fossil fuels as well. So where is all the Saudi Arabian oil going to go even more to China? So obviously they're going towards their customer, towards China. But then again, I don't think we have to dramatize the situation too much in a sense. Um, I think there is a limit to sort of the China-Saudi Arabia relationship, and that is sort of the political and the security uh, dimension to it. Um, Saudi Arabia's tie with the U.S. rests on sort of the security partnership, lots of arms exports, and, um, and a sort of strong U.S. position uh, against Iran. This is not something that China can do uh, or where China will replace the U.S. So Saudi Arabia is, is playing its interest, you know, and, and looking where the economic future is, um, but probably also aware that uh, its security uh, future lies somewhere else. Yeah, Saudi Arabia, uh, one of those nations mentioned uh, uh, as being those fomenting the troubles, say Iranian authorities. Uh, they've had a protest movement, the biggest in decades that's been going on since September. And the week began with the dashed hopes uh, that uh, there would be some kind of concessions in the face of that protest movement. But the regime instead doubled down with uh, its first execution of a demonstrator. Here you see uh, uh, the bruised face of Mohsen Shikari in what activists call the forced confession. His victim of a CG militiaman required 13 stitches for a knife stab. Um, he was uh, hanged this week, uh, the first of many worn hardliners. And yet, and yet on Thursday evening, they came out once more. These are social media images from Tehran, uh, people chanting, I'll kill whoever killed my brother, and death uh, to uh, the dictator. What kind of a week was it for Iran, Borzudar Gahim? I don't. I think it was a, a, a it was a cold one in Tehran, from what I could see. It was a, you know a week of strikes, uh, protests, and then this horror. Uh, this uh, young man, 23 years old, uh, executed uh, uh, in a in a move that was just so far beyond even the uh, Iranian regime's very poor standards on human rights. He was hung to death on a on a specious charge uh, that could at best be described as attempted murder. Uh, it was a, an outrage even by Iran's own terrible standards and and rules and and laws. This was not a capital offense. There was no appellate process. Uh, this was a, a you know a true atrocity. And and it's the first of many to come. So no compromise at all. I think they're trying to. They're they're. I think they're desperate, and I think they're trying many different moves. Uh, they're 
testing trial balloons, like easing up on hijab. Uh, they're opening up dialogue. With Are some they of the easing up on hijab? Yeah, they've definitely de facto since September 16th. They've stopped uh, the you know uh, harassment of the systematic harassment of women and young couples and you know poorly dressed uh, people on the streets. There's no more of that going on since the uprising began. They they've uh, they've, they've they've either decided that they're going to step back or they've redirected those security forces towards uh, suppressing the protesters. So they're trying various means to try to get the people to stop protesting, and that includes. Includes uh, semi offers of compromise, and that includes uh, you know the threat uh, now apparent that even if you just go out and and protest, uh, you could be put to death. Uh, the British newspaper, uh, the, the Guardian, Nico Hines, uh, uh, reporting that uh, uh, doctors are, are saying that uh, uh, authorities are shooting women in their private parts at uh, demonstrations. I mean, it's just horrifying. It's understandable in some ways to see the way the regime is now attempting to try and put a lid on this. They've gone to absolute plan Z, uh, try and just scare the hell out of everybody. Uh, and I think, you know, to some extent that might have some positive impact. Some people might be afraid to go out and to protest, but ultimately you're just doing even more to undermine the regime's authority, its legitimacy, and it's getting to the point now, and I think we're on the pathway towards this, where the regime simply does not have the legitimacy to rule over the people of Iran anymore. And it's not gonna be a straightforward way to solve that. There's gonna be huge amounts of blood spilled as we try and come to a resolution, but it doesn't seem as though the Iranian regime is gonna go out quietly. Vivian Wong? You know, I, I really felt um, this week that the kind of back and forth, you had the prosecutor general come out saying that there was not going to be the enforcement of the hijab anymore, which, as Borzu said, there hasn't really been in a couple of months. Then you had the police saying, no, 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 that's not true. Um, and then you had this horrific hanging. It appeared to me from kind of as an outsider um, who doesn't follow Iran exceedingly closely day by day, that this was a government that was absolutely fractured, um, not knowing what to do, and with different factions, um, and a kind of tussle over which way they're going to go. And I think what Nico says is correct, that in the process of trying to sort that out and reestablish the authority, it is going to be a very ugly and dangerous time. Are there different factions? Because the, 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 the line we're hearing is that no, now it's just all hardliners. It's hardliners and, you know, psychotic hardliners, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are uh, some uh, conservatives who've been, you know, uh, who are against Raisi. They've been against Raisi from the beginning. They tend to be more military types. And uh, they really blame him for having reinvigorated the morality patrols uh, and have ca and causing this mess. Because for years and years, the 
morality police was kind of easing up on people. He was the one who uh, 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 started uh, revamping and revitalizing the morality patrols. And a lot of people are angry at him over that. Uh, you had this week the uh, spectacle of the mayor of Tehran, a hardliner, uh, opening up a, a dialogue with students who came and, and spoke to him and, and addressed their concerns. Uh, it seemed like a sort of sincere dialogue. So yes, there's different factions uh, within the hardline uh, elite, uh, and they are uh, tussling with each other, and there is disagreement. You could see it in their own press. Mm. In other news, on Wednesday, Peru's president tried to dissolve parliaments and the judiciary and wound up out of office and behind bars. Pedro Castillo seemed to have forgotten to first seek the support of political allies, the army, or even the police. Yet, that was arguably the second most bungled coup attempt of the week. Meet, if you will, Heinrich XIII Prince Royce, a minor royal from Thuringia in eastern Germany. He was one of 25 nabbed in raids across the country, as well as in Italy and Austria. The far-right pro-Russian cabal wanted to topple the government and declare a new Reich in the mold of the one that ruled Germany up to World War uh, I. Uh, Josef Devek, uh, your thoughts on, on a story that has people chuckling slightly in, in many quarters, except in Germany, where they're taking it very seriously. Well, I, I don't think people in Germany are taking it serious in the sense that there was a, a, a real danger of a coup. Um, that's not really the story. Uh, Germany has very strong democratic foundations. If there was a real coup attempt, there would be millions of people in the street the next day um, and and shouting that down. And also their, their system is, is sort of hardwired so that because it, it, you you have you have a federal system, so that uh, staging a coup requires yeah, I mean, like huge uh, logistics. I think the story here is not that much the coup. I mean, it just shows how crazy they were that they were thinking in these terms. But the real worry is is that you have um, a real story of right wing extremism and terrorism. So these people, these 20, 30 people coming together, it's impossible for them to stage a coup, but they can very much do terrorist attacks. And, uh, and in reality, in Germany, we have a history over the last 10, 15, and even longer years of uh, right-wing extremist terrorism, you know, for example, burning uh, refugee homes, um, you know, um, uh, violence against uh, Germans of Jewish or Muslim faith. Um, for example, a couple of years ago, a mayor uh, was killed, uh, you know, who, uh, who made a stance that it was important to support refugees uh, after the 2015 Syrian refugee crisis. So it just shows that there is in Germany a real problem uh, of far-right extremist uh, terrorism and uh, that this problem is not solved at all. Yeah, this included, it, the, the group included, what, active um, officers, included a magistrate? Yeah, everything. And I mean, if you look in sort of the statements these people did over the last couple of years, you'll hear all these kinds of conspiracy theories about the Rothschild bankers and about the Freemasons. I mean, like this is complete conspiracy theories. But the problem is that some of these people or that are in this clique have in the past committed you know, real crimes. And that is the thing that is worrying for the future. And that is why Germany is taking this very seriously. Uh, Germany's taking it seriously. Uh, Nico Heinz, um, uh, they're also a lot inspired by QAnon. Uh, is there a, a January 6th effect here? 
I'm sure that that was a big rallying point for a lot of these groups all over the world. Obviously, ultimately, the January 6th insurrection didn't amount to very much, but if you think about it, they did you know, storm the capital, they got inside, uh, and I think it was a reminder that if you can just waltz into the seat of power by using, you know, huge numbers, even in the most heavily armed country in the world, you could probably do it in your local country too. I think, you know, there's a temptation to laugh at this attempt, but, you know, it seems as though we're still not quite sure in terms of how many weapons, what kind of, uh, how pre well prepared they were militarily, but uh, it seems that as though weapons were found in at least 50 locations as the police have been raiding places. Um, so this is a really serious threat. And I think it's, only, it's a very fine line when it comes to terrorism between an idiot and an idiot who's blown some people up. I don't know if anyone's seen the film Four Lions. It's a kind of comedy masterpiece, very British sort of dark sense of humor, um, where these kind of idiots are training uh, in the woods and um, uh, on like uh, rubber dinghy rapids to prepare themselves for a, a terror attack that never they can never manage to actually pull off. But there's a very fine line between those guys who ended up, one of them blows himself up in a field by mistake on his own, and someone who manages to blow themselves up and actually take out, you know, maybe it's just a couple of families, maybe it's a hundred people. So it's really, really dangerous. And if you look at the US with the mass shootings, you, all you need is one lunatic with a gun to cause an absolutely enormous amount of damage. I feel like Borza Daragahi, it's kind of when we were talking about the Christchurch mass shooting, when we talked about other incidents around the globe, there is this tiny but very active ecosystem that's global when it comes to uh, to these fringe elements. Absolutely, and these movements have become transnational. Um, they are inspired, uh, sadly, by uh, it, this kind of uh, right-wing extremism has become uh, one of my country's uh, greatest exports uh, from the United States. The QAnon, the anti-COVID stuff, the uh, January 6th uh, lunacy. Um, but look, you know, they arrested uh, 25 people uh, and, and more are under scrutiny. We're talking about a network of 21,000 people in this Reichsburger movement. If you had taken out the word far-right extremism and put in jihadis, that's all we would be talking about right now. If Germany had just arrested 25, a, a cell of 25 jihadis that was planning to storm the, the Reichstag in Berlin and take over the German government, that's, th there would be no other news right now. So, you know, yes, we can laugh at these guys a bit. They were armed. They had military experience. One was a tank commander. One was a, uh, a, a battalion commander in a parachute unit. Uh, one was a member of the special forces, numerous police officers, and that's just the people that they've gotten in this particular round. More are coming, the German prosecutor says. Vivian Wall? I, I think Borzu has it quite exactly right mm. that there has been a tendency in the last couple of days to just like brush, you know, blow this off as some kind of weird um, fringe group. But that might be the way in which we see right-wing extremists. And in the US as well, in which, you know, right-wing extremism was downplayed for years before the January 6th insurrection. So um, I think that, uh, you know, we're accustomed to overblowing every single statement and action of support for jihadist uh, groups. 
and we are accustomed to underplaying right-wing extremism. Um, and I think we just don't have the balance right. Josef Devek, is there another factor? And we've talked about China. We've talked about Russia. Uh, and a lot of people have linked actions of what's happened in the world in 2022 uh, to the after effects of COVID. Is there also a COVID effect here? A lot of these fringe groups were the ones protesting loudly uh, back in 2020 and 2021 in Germany uh, against uh, COVID measures being taken by authorities. Yeah, I think you can say so. I mean, in, in uh, Stendhal's famous uh, novel on love, he talks about this concept of crystallization, when love, you know, crystallizes in a moment. And you can say maybe COVID was a moment of crystallization for, you know, far right and conspiracy theorists from all different walks of life coming together and organizing themselves. And if you look at the German story, you know, we're talking about January the 6th and now this coup attempt in Germany. But in reality, it's the other way around. It was a COVID rally in Germany that was pre-January the 6th that turned out then afterwards, at some point, this COVID rally started to attack the Reichstag, the, you know, the German parliament in, uh, in Berlin, and tried to enter it. It never really got that far because police was there and was preventing it. But in reality, you know, the German COVID protest in Berlin tried to take over the Reichstag, and that was before January the 6th, right? That was August 2020. Yeah. So, uh, so in a sense, maybe actually we're seeing here the copy of the copy of what was originally a German story. Uh, but I do think, yes, if you look at sort of this far-right extremist, you know, club and everything, you see it's so disparate. It's so wide-ranging. And perhaps the thing that brought them together were these COVID protests. Now, the COVID supercharged the, the far right, uh, gave them new recruits, uh, uh, and allowed them to infiltrate these anti-vaccination protests. This is according to uh, German authorities. Uh, they, 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 there was a merging, essentially. Uh, okay, COVID restrictions are over. Uh, a lot of people drifted away from the movement, uh, from these far right movements, from these anti-COVID restriction movements. But the ones who remain are the real hardcore, the real dangerous ones. Nick Owens, how, how much um, attention has there been on this story where you are? I don't think it's been a huge story over here. I think the, it's true that the anti-COVID lockdown movement has been key in this. I think a lot of people, you know, I think it's really important to remember what a bizarre and awful time we've all been through. And I can understand why unhinged people or people who are easily persuadable have been taken up into believing that we're in some sort of end times and that this is some sort of post-apocalyptic awful nightmare it does feel a bit like that um, so i think that's the perfect breeding ground for these kind of groups but like we've been saying there's a long trail of of this kind of behavior that goes on years and years and years predates covid obviously and there was the Reichstag um, attempted storming in 2020, but there was also the shooting of the Shisha bar in Germany in 2020. Mm. Um, 11 people were killed. That was carried out by a kind of crazed right wing conspiracy theorist as well. This is not a problem that's going to go away easily, unfortunately. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Nico Hines, for being with us uh, from uh, London. I want to thank as well Borsu Dargahi, Josef Devek, Vivian Walt. Thank you for being with us here 
in the world this week.